It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. The weird news of the day comes out of Denver. Artificial intelligence is learning to flirt thanks to a Colorado scientist. The pickup lines generated uh, are perfectly awkward and hilarious too, such as, you look good today, want snacks? I can tell by your red power light that you're into me. Can I see your parts list? Like, I don't need artificial intelligence trying to entice me, try to make me laugh. Just give me, like, the facts and figures. What? Uh, Is this where we're headed? Robots that are going to try to outsmart us by appealing to our ego, to our, you know, by by making us feel that uh, we are smart and good-looking. I don't know. It's so bizarre. Maybe this is just a fun thing that actually is going to go nowhere, which would be perfectly fine with me. Welcome to the Friday edition. Hope you have a good weekend plan. Friday morning means that we are making all kinds of changes to Media Buzz for Sunday morning. If you want to catch it on Fox at 11 Eastern, some of which you'll get an advanced peek at here on the podcast. Um, Here's something that caught my eye. It has to do with the founder of Black Lives Matter, the co-founder. Facebook has begun blocking stories from right-leaning news outlets about a new $1.4 million home purchased by Black Lives Matter co-founder Patrice Kahn-Coulors. So if you saw a story on this in the New York Post, which, remember, famously was blocked by Twitter in something that Jack Dorsey ultimately admitted was a mistake and apologized for, that was the Hunter Biden story, or the Daily Mail were greeted with a message that said, your post couldn't be shared because this link goes against our community standards. But the story could still be shared from certain other publications. All right, so Khan Kulors is a 37-year-old self-described Marxist who spent three and a half million bucks on homes last year, another million and a half in March. Uh, the post story was headlined, Marxist BLM leader buys $1.4 million dollar home in ritzy L.A. enclave. Um, So that's prompted all kinds of criticism. And the first I saw of this was Twitter suspending, temporarily suspending a pretty prominent sports writer named Jason Whitlock for making some snarky comment about this. Oh, you're with your people, I think it was. Now, I don't understand. What is the community standards as being violated? The only thing that I could see that would be a legitimate concern was if you gave the address. And maybe then this person is going to get harassed or, you know, uh, I'm very sensitive about, you know, giving out people's home addresses. I don't care who you are. But every single day there are stories about all these celebrities, you know, putting up their Malibu mansion for $10 million. It goes on and on and on and on. It's a staple of news. It's a certain sort of, it's, you know, it's real estate porn. It's a certain voyeuristic aspect to it. Um, no, I guess it, what it's hypocrisy because you're for Black Lives Matter, but you made a lot of money and you have a really fancy house. Uh, fine, you know, criticize it. Don't criticize it. I don't care. I don't understand why. What, Facebook never explains these things. Maybe there's a big uproar. Mark Zuckerberg will feel compelled to have some minion issue a statement. Uh, in other news, uh, Mike Pence is recovering after surgery to have a pacemaker. Implanted in his heart, this is an official announcement during the last two weeks, the former vice president uh, reportedly experienced symptoms associated with a slow heart rate. Consulted with his doctors, had the pacemaker installed on Wednesday, procedure was successful. 
he will return to normal activity in the coming days. Um, he had disclosed back in 2016, I don't remember this at all, that he had an asympotic left bundle branch block, which I don't quite understand what it is, but it doesn't sound good. So uh, wishing Mike Pence well. Uh, hope this takes care of his health problem. You know, this other story, the latest mass shooting, eight people dead at a FedEx facility in Indianapolis. I don't even know what to say about it. These mass shootings and the inevitable gun debate, which we talked about after the shootings, the killings in the Atlanta area spots, after the massacre in the Boulder supermarket, um, they just seem to be happening more and more and more to the point where, you know, I'm watching television this morning and it's on there, but it's not dominating the news the way it would have a few years ago, the way it did just a few weeks ago uh, with the Boulder supermarket situation. We don't know a lot of details about this, but I'm just like everybody else in this country. I'm just so tired, so anguished, so heartbroken of innocent people losing their lives because crazy people, and you've got to be mentally ill or have some severe psychotic sickness to go shooting up a bunch of people. I mean, is this a, a case of, you know, a person who lost their job or something, or worked there? I do not know. I do know it's out of control. And I do feel that something has to be done. But inevitably, as I've talked about in the wake of the Atlanta and Colorado shootings, um, you know, it's gridlock. Joe Biden issued a couple of minor executive orders, but, you know, more background checks. Would that have prevented it in this case? I don't know. But a lot of crazy people in this country have access to guns who should not. All right. I want to really get into the, um, uh, the meat of our program here with a story that I remember vividly covered the hell out of uh, back last June. So it's about 10 months ago. It was the Russian bounty story. And you will recall that the New York Times, you may not remember all the details, but the New York Times signing unnamed officials had a story that just ignited this absolute media wildfire that just burned across the landscape, saying that U.S. intelligence officials had concluded. You know what? I'll read you the lead from this New York Times story because I looked it up. American intelligence officials have concluded that a Russian military intelligence unit secretly offered bounties to Taliban-linked militants for killing coalition forces in Afghanistan, including targeting American troops amid the peace talks to end the long-running war there, according to officials briefed on the matter. Either all or part of that story was later said to have been confirmed uh, by the Wall Street Journal, by the Washington Post, maybe a couple of networks. And, you know, it's in the middle of the campaign. Everybody wanted to know what President Trump was going to do about it. President Trump, for his part, said he did not believe it, uh, said it was a fake news media hoax. There was this whole question about whether he had been briefed or not briefed about it. Um, Trump said at the time that this had not been called to his attention, that it hadn't been in his uh, oral briefings. A follow-up in the Times, as I recall, said that it was in his presidential daily brief, but everybody knew they didn't always read that. And so that debate raged as well. Just some of the uh, reaction on television at the time. This is June of 2020. Rachel Maddow. And now you know from this reporting in the New York Times, which has since been confirmed by the Wall Street Journal, that not only does the president know 
that Russia was paying for American soldiers' deaths, but then she went on. Wolf Blitzer, CNN, get this. The Washington Post is now reporting that the alleged Russian bounties to Taliban fighters in Afghanistan are believed to have resulted in the deaths of U.S. troops. Lawrence O'Donnell, MSNBC. What did the president know about Vladimir Putin offering a bounty for the killing of American soldiers in Afghanistan, and when did he know it? Rephrasing the famous Watergate question. Okay, but now, 10 months later, Trump's out of office, the Biden administration is walking it back. The Biden administration now concludes, based on its own review of the intelligence, that it's not proven, that this may not have happened, that it is possible that Trump was right. Here is the president's press secretary, Joe Biden, telling reporters yesterday about U.S. intelligence. They assessed with low to moderate confidence, as you alluded to, speaking to the reporter, that Russian intelligence officers sought to encourage Taliban attacks against U.S. and coalition personnel in Afghanistan. So first of all, she says encourage, not pay money for. Second of all, low to moderate confidence. Okay, if I told you that I had low to moderate confidence in your ability to do your job, wouldn't you be worried about your job? So the confidence may be low. Um, in other words, this remains unproven. And it just was so many of these media frenzies where somebody would report something and everybody in the world would go nuts and there'd be nothing else on television for a week. And whatever denial Trump gave, and look, some of these stories were legitimate, some of these stories were later confirmed, and some were not. And this is one is in the category that was not. And it really makes you wonder. Now, in fairness to the Times, it's almost like a game of telephone because the Times had various caveats in its story. But those get lost in the um, sanding down to make it, you know, simple declarative sentences for broadcast. So then it became, well, uh, this was true that the Russian were Russian military uh, officers were offering bounties. Then it became, well, Vladimir Putin was doing this, and not any of the alleged or possible or U.S. intelligence believes. So that's not the Times' fault, but you do have to question, did this story really hold up? Now, you look at the New York Times story on it today, and you, you how do I put this? There should be a candid assessment that, the Biden administration, uh, which has issued a whole bunch of sanctions against Russia for other things, which we'll get into, did chose not to do it on this. There should be a candid acknowledgement that the Biden administration is not as strong in supporting the allegation made, publicized, and amplified last year by the New York Times. Instead, here's the lead in today's Times. The Biden administration warned the Kremlin on Thursday over the CIA's conclusion that Russia had covertly offered payments to militants to encourage more killings of American and coalition troops in Afghanistan, delivering the diplomatic admonition as it imposed sanctions on Moscow over its hacking and election interference. Okay, so the sanctions were something else, warning the Kremlin. Well, the CIA had sort of concluded that, and that was sent out to the embassies, as I recall, and British intelligence was told. But, all right, let me just keep reading. The administration stopped short of inflicting sanctions on any Russian officials over the suspected bounties. Stopped short. 
making clear that the available evidence about what happened, primarily what Afghan detainees told interrogators, continues to fall short of definitively proving the CIA's assessment that Russia likely paid money to reward attacks. I mean, that is such a convoluted freaking sentence. The Times is sort of saying, okay, what are the key phrases here? Fell short, didn't make clear, available evidence, primarily what Afghan detainee said, falls short of definitively proving. Okay, so if a story is not definitively proven, then it's unproven, right? It's not solid evidence. Uh, and then uh, a senior administration official is quoted as telling reporters, assesses with low to moderate confidence. I don't know why they just didn't quote Jen Psaki, who by the time this was published, um, certainly had used that very phrase on the record. Oh, the New York Times first reported last summer the existence of the CIA's assessment and that the National Security Council led an interagency process to re- develop a range of uh, response options. Uh, the Times also reported the available evidence centered on what detainees were believed, who were believed to be part of a criminal militant network linked to the Taliban, had told interrogators. So that's more caveats, believed to have been part of. They're the only sources. Um, but it turns out they weren't sort of in the room. They had heard this. Uh, also, the Times says it reported that the National Security Agency placed lower confidence in the assessment. So that's what I mean by some of the caveats. Some of that was in the Times story, but the Times, nevertheless, they went with it. You, when you make a decision to put this story on the front page, you're saying, okay, some believe it, some don't believe it, but we, we the New York Times, have decided that this is uh, strong enough, the evidence is strong enough to go with it. The Biden administration has not uncovered anything new and significant to bring greater clarity to the muddied intelligence portrait, the Times says today. But if it's muddied, do you go with the story? If it's muddied. Wow. As a result, the detainees who recounted to interrogators what they were told about the purported arrangement were not themselves in the room for conversations with Russian intelligence officials. Can you see why I'm kind of skeptical? Like, purported... Uh, fall short of definitive, they weren't in the room. I don't know. Does that amount to enough evidence to result in a New York Times story that set the media world on fire? That's the debate. Now, separately, yesterday, uh, the Biden administration did come out and say, and this had been reported in the past, has to do mainly with Paul Manafort that a business associate of Trump campaign officials back in 2016 provided campaign polling data to Russian intelligence services. The strongest evidence to date, says the Times, that Russian spies had penetrated the inner workings of the Trump campaign. We already knew about this. Paul Manafort and his deputy, Rick Gates, who were, you know, Manafort was the campaign manager. Uh, He was the campaign chairman, excuse me. Gates was his number two. And their business associate, uh, had a direct pipeline or set up a direct pipeline from the campaign to Russian spies at a time when the Kremlin, as the whole world knows, was trying to sabotage the 2016 presidential election. Uh, we even know the name of the Trump aide's associate, Konstantin Kalimnik, a Russian intelligence operative. And uh, Robert Mueller looked into this. It was in the Mueller report. Uh, Kalimnik was named. So, 
Biden people are now saying, well, this is part of why we're sanctioning. It also had to do with what it was called the solar winds hacking. That was not back in 2016. That was, you know, in recent months, this incredible cyber hack of lots of U.S. federal agencies by the Russians, who apparently are pretty good at this. Having the polling data would have allowed Russia to better understand the Trump campaign strategy, including where the campaign was focusing resources at a time when the Russian government was carrying out its own efforts to undermine Donald Trump's opponent, who, depending on what time period this was, uh, would have been Joe Biden or maybe it was earlier during the primaries. So Rick Gates put out a statement saying, well, the Treasury is not actually putting out any evidence here. Uh, What we provided was simplistic and outdated, never in real time. It was both from public and internal sources. It was not massive binders full of demographics or deep research. It was top-line numbers and not contain any strategic plans. Well, that's a good spin uh, since you've been accused of this. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, moving right along. Um, I wanted to talk about this yesterday. Didn't quite get to it. You know, I've got a whole sort of stack of stuff uh, to borrow Rush Limbaugh's term, and I can't get to everything in the time that we share together. And it's so nice that we share this time together. But there's a new sort of dust-up now over whether to expand the Supreme Court. During the campaign, Joe Biden wouldn't say and wouldn't say and wouldn't say, even when he was the Democratic presidential nominee, uh, would you, well, I'll look at it, well, I'll think about it, you know, would you support expanding the Supreme Court, which is for one reason and one reason only. Democrats, or some Democrats, I should say, want to expand the Supreme Court in order to give liberals a majority on what is now a 6-3 conservative majority SCOTUS with three Donald Trump appointees. And obviously, this would be payback to what was seen as a dirty deed by Mitch McConnell when he wouldn't allow a hearing on Barack Obama's Uh, nominee Merrick Garland, now Attorney General, uh, despite the fact that there were many months to go in uh, 2016. And then in 2020, just weeks before the election, McConnell totally flips, pushes through Amy Coney Barrett, um, what many people think was a hypocritical hypocritical move. So when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, and by the way, she had not been in favor of expanding the Supreme Court, and by the way, Stephen Breyer liberal justice, who a lot of Dems want to retire so they can get somebody younger in there. He is not. He put out a statement the other day saying this would be uh, chattering our tradition and so forth. Even though, yes, I know, you know, centuries ago, the number of justices fluctuated. Sometimes it was 10, sometimes it was something else. But for a very, very, very long time, and certainly since FDR's failed attempt to pack the court, even with a Democratic Congress, FDR couldn't do it uh, and shouldn't have been able to do it. So finally, as I recall, at the end of the campaign, Biden finally said, well, you know, uh, I'm not, at one point he said, I'm not a fan of court packing. Then I think he said, okay, well, we'll appoint a commission, we'll study it. And he did that about a week ago, and clearly his heart's not in it. Joe Biden does not want to pack the Supreme Court, doesn't want to expand the Supreme Court. It's not going to happen in my view. Uh, He appointed this commission so people could say, well, he fulfilled that campaign promise. But what happened is, a bunch of liberal Dems on the Hill the other day introduced a bill to expand the size of the Supreme Court. And this, you know, is a huge target for the Republicans who are calling it a power grab. Well, it is a power grab, or would be, 
So is what Mitch McConnell did, pure power grab. But do you meet one power grab with another and do you shatter, you know, this century or century and a half of tradition by saying, you know what, nine justices isn't enough. Let's have 12 and Joe Biden can appoint the next three. Let's, let's have 15. Why stop there? What would the Republicans do when they again control Congress, when they again control the White House? So what's happened now is, according to this Washington Post piece, the leaders of the Democratic Party are, oppo- are opposing this. But, you know, this is always the thing. Once a few, if a few Republicans propose X, the Democrats ignore the fact that, you know, Mitch McConnell doesn't want to do it or Kevin McCarthy doesn't want to do it. And they say, well, Republicans want to, you know, abolish Obamacare. When some Democrats propose X, in this case, expanding the Supreme Court, you're giving the GOP a great fodder, great ammunition. Nevertheless, the leaders came out and said, uh, 13 is the number, expanding from 9 to 13. So what does that mean? Four new Democratic appointed justices. Underscoring tensions within the party over how to address concerns that the nation's highest court will remain reliably conservative for years to come. That's why the stakes are so high here. These are lifetime tenure appointments. So the goal, I mean, the post just comes out and says it, is to allow Democrats to appoint more liberal justices by expanding the court size rather than waiting for vacancies. Nancy Pelosi says she has no plans to bring this bill to the floor, that she supports the Biden commission, produce a report later this year, you know, which also would look at term limits. Should justices get lifetime tenure? That's an interesting question. Dick Durbin, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, said he is not ready to support this legislation. Let's think through this carefully. I don't question that my colleagues in the House and Senate have their own theories. Let's have that conversation. But I, but keep in mind, the ultimate goal here is to make the historically proper choice for the administration of justice in the long term. Now, you know who doesn't like this and who likes the idea of packing the court? Jerry Nadler. Jerry Nadler who does, of course, chair the House Judiciary Committee, who led the first impeachment of Donald Trump, but kind of got squeezed out in the second impeachment. He says this, Speaker Pelosi is a very good judge of events in history, but that once the current court hands down more destructive decisions, quote, Speaker Pelosi and others will come along. So he doesn't want to say, Nancy, you're full of it. She's the leader of his party in the House. She says, where do you see what this horrible conservative court does, and then you're all going to flip and you're all going to support my proposal. Well, we'll see about that. What does Joe Biden say about it now? Jen Psaki got asked that very question. Um, President believes that members of Congress have the right to put forward legislation on issues they support. His view is that he wants to hear from this commission that has a range of viewpoints. Okay, you know, that's the whole point of commissions. The commissions are ways to bury issues in Washington. You buy time, everybody forgets about it. Whoa, wait for the commission. And the commission comes back, nothing happens, it's a two-day story, and that's why you appoint commissions. There are a few exceptions there, but most of the time, that's true. All right, let's get to the situation with COVID. Um, This I found a little unnerving, but if you stop and think about it, it makes perfect sense. A White House scientific advisor and the CEO of Pfizer, which of course with Moderna has one of the two most effective vaccines, are now saying that vaccinated people in the U.S., and by the way, a lot more people still have to be vaccinated, and elsewhere, of course, 
may need booster shots and annual inoculations to maintain their protection against COVID-19, as well as the emerging variants. Growing consensus among scientists, says the Washington Post, and public health experts over the need for additional injections could have serious implications for the equitable distribution of vaccine doses worldwide. So Biden's uh, chief science officer for the pandemic, David Kessler, uh, told the House hearing yesterday that the U.S. should plan for booster shots in the future. Pfizer CEO Albert Borla said a likely scenario includes the need for a third vaccine dose six to 12 months after inoculation, after which there'll be an annual revaccination. You know, on the one hand, anyone who gets this vaccine is thinking, finally, I'm safe, it's over, I can, I'll still wear a mask, but I can go out, I can see my grandkids, I can have a barbecue, I can go into a restaurant, I can go into a movie theater. Now, it's not enough. But if you compare it to the flu, like a lot of us get flu shots every year, it's just that it has been such a gargantuan undertaking to get the whole American population vaccinated, at least those that are willing to get it. I guess we're now at 125 million Americans who have gotten at least one dose. That's pretty good, but it's not 200 million. You know, the whole population is 330 million. Obviously, you got to exclude the really young kids. So I guess we may have to resign ourselves to that. But do we have to, are we going to, is it going to take this same massive effort or is it going to become more routinized where there's enough doses and you just make an appointment at your local CVS or Walgreens or supermarket and you get your shot? Meanwhile, uh, some not so good news on COVID-19. Pandemic has turned into a patchwork of regional hotspots. Uh, hospitalizations are now at 47,000, the highest since back on March 4th. 38 states have reported an increase. Michigan is the worst by far. More than 10,000 new infections on Tuesday alone. Jeez. 32 other states have registered infections just in the past two weeks. It's so a whole uh, upper Midwest, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Minnesota, South Dakota, also up. Other hotspots, Maine, New Hampshire, Delaware and Maryland, Ugh. Arizona, Colorado and Nevada, Oregon and Washington State. All right, let me close with a little stuff about the broadcast networks. Susan Zarinsky is leaving her job as president of CBS News. Uh, Susan Zarinsky, longtime reporter, a really good journalist, has done a whole lot in her career. I know her. Everybody in Washington knows her. Everyone calls her Z. Well, apparently she didn't like the job that much because she's only been in it for a couple of years, and she went to a meeting, and on a piece of paper she wrote, I hate my job. And she made sure her colleagues saw it, according to page six of the New York Post. Source says there was a corporate budget meeting. She was in it. It dragged on and on. At one point, she held up this piece of paper. And then, this is a nice, like, movie scene. She stepped down from her role after the meeting. But this has been coming for some months. There were not so subtle signs that Z was not happy in her role. Uh, it became immediately clear that Zerinsky was uh, less content wrangling marquee talent and managing vast budgets. I mean, she'd been a producer her whole life, so being that kind of manager was new to her. Um, she's expected to stay on, and she's negotiating some kind of uh, wide-ranging production deal with parent company Viacom CBS. So, meanwhile, over at ABC News, ABC has just named a new president. I didn't get a chance to mention this yesterday. Her name is Kimberly Godwin. She is the first black woman to lead a major broadcast network's news division. Well, that's probably overdue. Uh, she replaces James Goldston, 
who announced his departure a few months ago. Um, and he had been there a long time. He had, when he came in, he was criticized for having sort of a tabloid sensitivity when he was in charge of GMA and other shows. Uh, but ABC uh, doing pretty well. Uh, David Muir has the top-rated uh, evening newscast, 9.4 million, compared to NBC Nightly News, 7.9 million, CBS Evening News, 5.8 million. Um, but you've got a whole lot of movement going on. I mean, you know, basically, these are jobs that you serve into until you get kicked out because they're impossible jobs at a time of declining uh, television viewership, especially for the networks. So CNN President Jeff Zucker has already said he's out of there by the end of this year. Rashida Jones uh, became the new president of MSNBC, replacing, you know, longtime veteran uh, Phil Griffin. When she took over MSNBC, she became the first black woman to run one of the three major cable news channels. So we're starting to see a major diversity push. This is not an accident. We're starting to see more women uh, running cable news networks. I mean, Suzanne Scott has been the CEO of Fox News Media for some time now. Uh, I think that's a healthy thing. I mean, if you look at the history of it, I mean, basically, our all companies have been run by, by white men forever. Doesn't mean they're not capable of running them now, but diversity is a good thing. Getting qualified minorities in there is a good thing. Uh, and letting Susan Zariski get back to what she loves is a good thing. Because when you're holding up that piece of paper that says, I hate my job, that's not exactly subtle. Look, some of the greatest journalists of our time don't necessarily make great managers. And some people who are just kind of middling level journalists are terrific when it comes to, you know, being the head of a whole organization. It's a kind of a different set of skills. Sometimes they overlap. Sometimes they do not. And with that, I hope you all have a great weekend. Another plug for Media Buzz right here. And you can subscribe to our modest little podcast here on Apple iTunes and a whole bunch of other places. We'll see you back here Monday with more Buzz. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com.